Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back, TFR listeners. The trend spotter himself joins us today on the program. Tim O'Reilly is one of the top minds in tech who has predicted and or driven many of the movements that now seem so obvious to us. In today's episode, we discuss Tim's path to becoming an investor, how he linked up with Bryce and launched O'Reilly AlphaTech, the shift in their model with IndieVC. We talk about Tim's focus on profitability and his counter to those that cite some of the biggest and best tech companies that are not profitable. We discuss Tim's new book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Tim outlines the way he thinks about business model maps. He explains his thought process on identifying technology shifts before they happen. We discuss fear and its role in shaping consumer mindset. Tim references historical lessons that are most overlooked by today's society. And we wrap up with a conversation on ICOs and cryptocurrencies, and we get Tim's opinion on their role in the future of tech. Tim's thoughtful and polarizing positions are on display here in today's episode. It was a thrill to get the man that so many VCs admire and mention as a key influence on their investment approach. It was about three years ago now that Mamoon Hamid suggested him as a guest, and I couldn't be happier to feature him. Here's the interview with Tim O'Reilly. Tim O'Reilly joins us today from Oakland, California. Tim has broad and deep experience across a variety of industries, but his impact on tech and software can't be overstated. If you've heard the terms open source software, Web 2.0, the maker movement, government as a platform, or the WTF economy, he's played a pivotal role in each. Tim is the founder, CEO, and chairman of O'Reilly Media and is a partner at early-stage venture firm O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures. He's also on the boards of Maker Media, Code for America, Pure J, Civis Analytics, and PopVox. Tim's popular book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, was released last quarter, and he's here to talk about that and much more. Tim, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you. So I feel like this first question here, we could we could spend an hour on this with uh, the depth of your background, but could you just talk about your backstory a little bit and sort of your path to tech and, and ultimately investing? Sure. Yes. Uh, well, I, I think probably the place to start is not really my path into tech, but definitely my path to investing. Uh, so when I started my company, it was tech writing consulting company, became a publisher of 
uh, you know, computer books eventually launched a conference business, an online library originally of ebooks, and now sort of online learning that's really the core of our business. It's, you know, video uh, print, uh, video ebook, uh, live online training. Uh, and all of this sort of really, we were the kind of the information company of the internet revolution. In back in 2000, uh, the uh, Publishers Weekly had a cover that said the internet was built on O'Reilly books. And I think that was true. I've had multiple tech billionaires tell me they started their company with a book that my, my company published. So uh, what was really funny was that I was not somebody out of Silicon Valley. I didn't play the investor game. I had no investors. I started my company with $500 and built it by you know, selling things to customers, you know, coming up with ideas for things that people needed. And uh, they paid me for those things. And that's how I built the company. And so in a, in a sense, I was, I was very late to investing because I didn't even think that way. And it was really a matter, it was really in the late 90s when I'd been in business for 15 years, I was like, wow, you know, why didn't I invest in, I mean, just even just never mind venture, but like, why didn't I invest in Cisco when I knew the internet was taking off? You know, <laughs> why didn't I, uh, you know, it just was, it was just foreign to me because I was in this world of, of real businesses where you just make and sell stuff. And I, I never worked for anybody else. I, I basically got into the business pretty much out of college. So I had very little experience and that was a that was a plus and a minus because it meant that I saw things with fresh eyes. I didn't, uh, you know, take in the usual Silicon Valley storylines. I just uh, found there were interesting technologies that nobody was talking about. I you know published books about them. I convened people to to kind of advance the state of the art. And then I said, oh, why is nobody talking about this? Let me tell a story about it. And so I became, in some sense, an industry storyteller. Uh, because I, I, I was seeing things that other people were missing. But even though I did invest inside my own company, you know, uh, in, in innovative ideas, I didn't actually think, oh, you know, startup. Because I wanted to have a company that would just grow, and that was the, ma the main focus. It was really uh, in – would have been in the late 90s that Mark Jacobson – well, first of all, I, we created – Inside O'Reilly Media, the first ever uh, commercial website it was called GNN, the Global Network Navigator, yep. uh, back in uh, 1993. It was the it was, there were only about 200 websites at the time. It was the first web portal, the first website to have advertising, and we sold it to AOL in 1995. Uh, but we did it because I didn't want to take in venture capital. I wanted to keep my company private. In my consulting days, I'd been around too many companies that had started out interesting and got boring, and I said, I, I don't want to do that. So we ended up spinning out GNN, selling it to AOL, and then we had a follow-on company that we had created called Songline Studios that became a joint venture with AOL. So bit by bit, I kind of became exposed, and then we sold that. So we were doing this internally. And then in the late 90s, Mark Jacobson, who was our VP of Business Development, suggested that we have an internal venture fund to invest in things that we you know, were involved in. And, and there were a couple of things that we uh, in, invested in. The first was a company called uh, – actually, I'm not sure what order they came in. But we invested in a company called CollabNet that was uh, started by Brian Bailendorf, who was one of the uh, co-founders of the Apache Project. And it was really about – 
building software for internet collaboration. And uh, we also invested in Active State, which was uh, building, uh, they had developed and distributed the, the uh, PC version of, of Perl, the Windows-based uh, version of the Perl programming language. They also ended up getting into antivirus. And uh, that was actually the exit for the company that got acquired, uh, the antivirus part got acquired by Sophos. And uh, we also were, uh, we invested in uh, Blogger, which was Evan Williams' first company. Now, wow. Ev had actually worked for uh, O'Reilly as his first job out of, uh, you know, out of the cornfields. And when he left, uh, we invested in his company. And uh, Mark and I actually were the ones who negotiated the sale of Blogger to Google. No way. On Ev's behalf, because he felt like he didn't, uh, he, you know, he, he didn't have, know how to do it. So. Uh, at the time, obviously, he went on to become very, very successful. Uh, but we, you know, that was a really interesting story because, you know, when when Ev and Meg Hurahan started Blogger, you know, it was all exciting, and uh, you know, he basically it got to the point where everybody left but Ev, and he was sleeping, you know, uh, on an air mattress under his desk, keeping keeping the thing going, and so, we, you know, it got a lot of excitement, went all the way, uh, you know, to the to the, the near death experience, and then and then uh, it, we ended up selling it, and and that became that was a very successful uh, exit. We sold to Google, and uh, you know as a result, we had pre IPO Google stock, which uh, turned out to be very nice. Uh, but the other two of those early investments, this this original fund was just called O'Reilly Ventures. It was actually internal to O'Reilly Media, my company. Um, were interesting because Collabnet was a great idea, but what happened was a real mistake that we made, which was that we became too responsive to customers. You know, so they kept asking for new features, and we became captive to some very large customers who who basically wanted uh, this, that, and the other thing. And then you end up, you know, we, we ended up raising, I think, uh, a couple of hundred million dollars. Uh, because we kept growing, we grew the business to you know fifty, sixty million in revenue, but we never got to profitability because it was it was really being captive to the, the market rather than having two you know saying no, sorry, we're not, we, this is what we're building. We're not just going to build you uh, HP the features that you want because that's going to turn us into half a you know a development shop and and we we it was it was it was just sort of a miscalculation. Uh, where we we identified you know this area of cl- of sort of collaboration tools for software subversion was uh, you know one of the principal you know tools so early you know relatively early version control system and so on so the ideas were right uh, but we were relatively inexperienced in, in, particularly in this sort of enterprise software world where there's this great imbalance of power with uh, big customers who 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 put a lot of demands on you and so that was actually that is actually in in sort of the category of lessons learned. And and the, the uh, you know the active state uh, exit was actually a great one because uh, it was so unexpected that you know here they just kind of had this this pearl business but they'd gotten into building antivirus tools and then along came Sophos out of the out of the blue and wanted to acquire the company so uh, so we had we had two out of three hits there and then we we basically Mark said well how about we go out and raise you know rather than just using our own funds uh, let's go out and raise raise a fund so we Mark. Did some development and ended up uh, hiring as as a partner Bryce Roberts, who's still my partner to this day. Uh, Mark's Mark's now uh, 
he's still offer he's still working on our first three funds, but he didn't join in the fourth fund because he's he wants to retire. Uh, you know, funds have a ten plus year life cycle, and he didn't want to do a fourth fund, so he he's. Uh, He's not active in our, our in our current fund, which I'll get to in a minute. But he was sort of he and Bryce really are the you know the, have been the key investors in our fund. You know, I supply deal flow, I review critical deals, uh, but I'm I, I don't actually I'm not actually a practicing VC in the sense that uh, you know I'm out there uh, so every day yeah. interviewing founders. Yeah. Uh, so a, a lot of what you know we did. You know, in looking for deal flow, particularly in the first three funds, uh, the, the Bryce has really shifted it in the force fund in a really interesting way, I think, which I want to get to. As you let you know, we've we've actually had Bryce on the program. Great. Can't remember what episode it was, but uh, but he was great. He went really deep on on indie VC and a little bit of the background. But this is a uh, this is okay, really great. helpful. So content. well, then this is, is is sort of overlapping material. But I suppose not everybody listens to every episode. Every, uh, <laughs> That's right. But but here's the thing: it was really interesting. You know, we our basic model. We didn't have a thesis. We basically have uh, had an approach that was a little bit based on the way that O'Reilly had operated as a, uh, you know, as a publishing and conference company, which was, hey, here's this area with some really interesting people in it doing really interesting work. Nobody else seems to be paying attention. So it was really just, and particularly when, when Mark first was kind of saying, hey, we want to do early stage. There weren't a lot of early stage funds. And so we were just working our network with interesting people and interesting projects. And of course, this is my original business plan for O'Reilly Media was interesting work for interesting people. And those two things, I think, have always been at the heart of what I've tried to do in all of my companies, which is, is this work interesting and are there interesting people doing it? And the people that I want to spend time with. Sure. And so, uh, you know, and, and probably the thing that you can you can go wrong with there is, and, and we certainly we have. You can a you can be too early, which is one of the things that we've done fairly often. The biggest thing, and this is probably uh, you know, uh, I know you kind of have a category, a way you do this thing where you ask for lessons learned later, but I'm going to kind of tell you this here. <laughs> Our biggest lesson learned over the years is there's a real risk in being too close to the center of the bullseye. What does that mean? So uh, I'll give you a first example of this well before our venture capital days, uh, but when we were doing investment internally to O'Reilly, we noticed quite correctly that there was something wrong with the World Wide Web. You know, it had started out as this collaborative medium with servers and, and browsers, you know, where everybody had both. Right. You know, it, it was it was really this collaborative medium. And then uh, as we uh, we had launched a project with, with a company called Spry called Internet in the Box because we were trying to get everybody on the Internet. And we noticed that the Web was becoming a read only medium because we'd gotten the browser to the PC, but there was no PC based web server. So we launched a product called Website which was the first PC based web server. And we grew that business. It was very exciting. And then Netscape entered the market, the, the server market, and then Microsoft entered the server market. And here were we, this tiny self-funded 
I mean, you know, I, I guess at that point, O'Reilly was probably 30, 40 million in revenue. But, you know, the software business was this little thing off to the side that we were investing out of the profits of our publishing business. And uh, we grew it. We'd grown it to about three million dollars a year. And, you know, it was probably we launched it, I think, in 94, 95. And, you know, by by 96, Microsoft originally had kind of said to us with great fanfare, wow, we're going to make you rich and famous. So fabulous. You've got a, a web server you know, running on Windows NT. And then a year later, they were apologetically saying, sorry, but we're going to have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and, because, and so we were collateral da- damage between, in this you know, battle between these two titans, you know, the venture capital-backed uh, Netscape and Microsoft, the big incumbent. And so being too close to the bullseye, I think, is uh, – is a real problem if you are an early trend spotter because you actually have to be, you know, you know, it's in this world that, that Reed Hoffman talks about in his blitzscaling work, which is you get into the situation where if you can't be first, you're dead. You know, which you know was why he's saying you've got to raise money, and that's just not my instinct. You know, my instinct is, you know, I used to say I like businesses where time is an ally, not an enemy. And because I was really trying to run this as a sort of a, a private company funded by cash flow, there's certain businesses that just don't fit. And, and those that you know, are dominated by titans are, 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 um, you know, are hard markets to play in. That was also true with GNN, which was our, really our first tech investment. You know, I mentioned the, the first web portal. Yeah. And there I made a conscious decision. You know, I... I, I uh, I remember reading this book, uh, I think it was called Marketing High Technology by Bill Davidow, who was one of the early venture capitalists. And he had this appendix in there called The Math of Market Domination. (laughs) And he said, in order to to dominate a market, you have to be more than half the market and able to grow faster than the market as a whole. And we were dominant. We, we, you know, we had we were running the NCSA What's New page. We were the we were the the web portal. But I didn't want to raise money because I didn't want to lose control of my company. And I and I, I could see, you know, Yahoo had gone out and raised money, and uh, and and I could see we're not going to be able to compete, which is why we sold. You know, so it was sort of a conscious decision, like you're either going to run that race or you're not. Now later on, I think I could I would have uh, had more sophistication. Said, "Oh, we can spin it out, take in investment, and then play that game." But I didn't want to. I only had my own pile of chips, and I didn't want to, you know, put the whole thing at stake, uh, uh, you know, in uh, in play, because I wanted to keep the company that I had. But I, I guess the point is, if you're really right, you run the risk of getting into a situation where you have to raise a lot of money to compete. Now, if you win, that's great. Because, you know, the, the returns are so high that it's all right that you've gotten badly diluted by VCs. But I also have watched a lot of companies where huge amounts of money have been raised. And as a result, the entrepreneurs get nothing for, you know, years and years of work. And, you know, or they get a, a, a tiny fraction of what they might have gotten if they had, uh, you know, kept uh, uh, more value. Sure. I remember once talking with the vice chairman of Bloomberg, and he was like, "Yeah, Mike always likes to tease the Silicon Valley guys that you know they've got these companies that are so much bigger than his, and he's just as rich as they are, you know, because he didn't take <laughs> yeah. in any venture money." <laughs> right, right. You know, so there, there, there's a lot that I think 
entrepreneurs need to, to take into account. And, and understanding the math behind the market that you're going after is so important. So many, so many people end up getting caught in this idea that raising money is an unalloyed good. You know, like, wow, I'm going to raise money. I'm, I'm, look, I'm a real company. And, and what they really end up as are, are hired, you know, hired hands uh, for venture capitalists, you know, where the VCs make the bulk of the money. And, and I actually like to say a lot of entrepreneurs are really end up looking a lot more to me like, say, actors or directors or producers in, in Hollywood than they look like real entrepreneurs. For me, a real entrepreneur is somebody who basically gets the bit in their teeth and they, they build, the, they build the, the company primarily with customer money and only secondarily with venture money in order to you know, help them grow. And, and so understanding that really makes a difference. You know, if you look at, at uh, you know, Google or Facebook, for example, great success, they didn't take lots of venture money because they didn't have to. It was to help them get to scale, but it wasn't essential to the business, whereas there's a lot of businesses where they basically have to raise and raise and raise. And I think face, uh, I mean, uh, Salesforce was the first company to show that you can do it that way. Remember, uh, you know, many of your listeners are probably not old enough to remember how astonished people were that, that uh, you know, Salesforce had raised $100 million and they still weren't profitable. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. They were the first to kind of just go that way. But, you know, you look at someone like Amazon. Jeff was very parsimonious. Yes, he raised money, but he went to debt as soon as he possibly could, you know, because he didn't want to give up more of his company than he had to. I kind of think that getting – the venture capital is the goal rather than a means to the goal, which is to build a long-term sustainable business uh, that you are in control of. Right. Right. And yeah, I mean, we've seen this with uh, the late stage growth rounds and the ratchets and um, founders getting closed out of their equity positions and, you know, the investors end up taking all the money. It's uh it's a real yeah. problem, but so this clearly informs your approach with NDVC. I mean, like I said, we've talked with Bryce about it, but um, more of a focus on profitability and some debt arrangements as opposed to pure equity. Yeah, and and it's it's uh, you know if you really believe in a business and, and you can see your path to positive cash flow, debt makes a lot of sense. But it's funny, you just really have to have a lot of, of entrepreneurs don't even have a sense of that being a possibility. I'll say it for myself. When we, uh, you know, we had done a, a lot of things in our growth by way of joint ventures with bigger companies. Uh, that was our you know, poor man's venture capital. You know, we built our international operations originally as a joint venture with International Thompson. And then actually when we sold GNN and uh, a follow-on company called uh, – uh, uh, Songline Studios, and then and then uh, another, yet another spin out of that group called Like Minds. We sold all those, and, and we used the the capital to basically buy out our our joint ventures. Uh, and but similarly, then we we uh, in the case of of Safari, which was our online original ebook subscription service, uh, we were joint. It was a joint venture with Pearson, and we it was you know we grew up very very nicely together for f fourteen you know fourteen years, and then they wanted to get out. 
And I thought, well, in order to buy them out, it's now a pretty substantial business. In order to buy them out, I'm going to have to take in equity. I talked to one friend who was a you know kind of a late stage uh, VC, really private equity guy, and he says, "I'd love to invest in your business, but looking at this business, why aren't you using debt?" And I went, "Oh yeah, you're right. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's cash flow positive, and it turns out that you know we we were able to buy Pearson out, and." The amount of money that we used to pay out to them as, as their share of the joint venture proceeds now goes to the bank. You know, so it's effectively a leveraged buyout of our own business. And uh, you know, we, we've we've paid down the bulk of the debt already, and it's it was a great you know. So again, getting more sophistication about debt and about cash flow in particular is super important. And there's such a focus these days on businesses that are just hyper growth. And the real idea is some of them may get to go public. But, you know, we've seen with Twitter and with Snap, unless you have a real business there, that's a really hard path. And, uh, you know, yes, there's companies that, that clearly made it all the way. Uh, but the basic goal of a lot of those businesses is to sell. And you're no longer in control of your destiny. And I also feel like if you have a business that your goal from the outset is to sell, you don't really believe in that business. That's a fair I mean, point. I, you know, like I had many opportunities to sell O'Reilly over the years. I didn't want to because I wanted the business. <laughs> I was like, yeah. why, why would I want to get rid of this thing that I've built, that I love, that I've got all these people that I'm working with and we're creating uh, you know, enormous value for the world. Now, the, the downside, of course, is these incredible exits uh, you know, that have, have – uh, uh, you know, become possible. And they're so much greater than they used to be for so much less actual achievement. You know, it's funny. I always think of that line in the, uh, 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 the movie, the social network, you know, a million dollars, that's not cool. You know, a billion, that's cool. And you think <laughs> about all these, these entrepreneurs and I go, look, you know, uh, Hewlett and Packard and, and you know, uh, Andy Grove and Gordon Moore, they didn't say that. I mean, they did end up, you know, becoming billionaires, but they, they didn't set, set out there going, man, $100 million, that's no good. Well, sure. You know, we got to be a billion. No, you know, it's just like. The exit's a, a byproduct yeah. of hard work. It's not, it's not the goal. That's that's right, you know, and and there's just there's there's sort of this gambling mentality, this uh, you know easy money mentality, this serial entrepreneur, you know. I, I am not terribly excited about investing in serial entrepreneurs because uh, I go again. Actually, I, I I take that back. But but you know, like wanting to do a business and really caring about it really matters. Yeah. So. I want to drill on this point a little more because, you know, in the book, you said it's only when a business becomes profitably self-sustaining rather than subsidized by investors that we can be sure it's here to stay. Yet, as you've alluded to, you know, many of the biggest private companies like Uber and Airbnb are not profitable. And even one of the best public tech companies, Amazon, is not profitable by choice, of course. Um, so well, how do you- Amazon is very close to profitable. And, and the other thing that, that, that is very true of Amazon is Jeff understood that positive cash flow was more important than profitability. Right. And they were right. they had positive cash flow very early on. Right. Right. Well, and if he wanted to be profitable, he could be. And to pay their debt with their cash flow. 
which means they didn't have to raise money. That's why Jeff is uh, often on the, the richest man in the world, because he basically said, oh, I can build a positive cash flow business, which means I can borrow against the future. Yeah, because that's really the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. Whether you do it with equity or with debt, you're borrowing against the future. If you borrow against the future with equity, you're asking people to place a bet with you. And if you lose the bet, you're out, just like in playing poker. If, on the other hand, you're asking people to build the future based on positive cash flow, it's like you know you're actually going to make money. Sure. It's, not, it's not a bet. Jeff isn't betting. I mean, yeah, sure, he makes bets. He says, okay, we're going to try the fire uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, phone, and it didn't work. That's a bet within the context of this giant engine of positive cash flow. Positive cash flow engine. Cash is king, even even senior to to profitability in this case. Yeah, great. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the book WTF. What's the future, and why it's up to us? Uh, why why'd you read it, Tim? Well, I think uh, some of the th reasons were based on what we're talking about right now, but more broadly, just I feel I felt that the the tech industry was heading for uh, a reckoning in several ways. Uh, I, I think you know we, it's still ahead of us. Uh, the, I, I think we're in a bubble, uh, not that dissimilar from the dot com bubble. You know, sure there are some real businesses just like there were then, uh, but there's an awful lot of easy money that's been chasing, you know, lousier and lousier opportunities. I, I, so I, I, I wanted people to, you know, it's like if you're going to go through that kind of, of hell, and it really was hell when you're there, uh, you know, you should be working on something you really care about. Two, uh, you know, this whole issue of technology, AI, robots, and the future of work seemed to me to be coming up, and it was going to be very easy, not just for tech to be painted as the bad guy, but more importantly, for tech to make bad choices. And, and a really good example, I, I've made Uber and Lyft fairly central to the book because they're a really good example of how if you think one way, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to you're going to end up with it with it with basically a worse world and you're going to get a lot of blowback. And yet. They're so close to being this incredible new capability for the world. So uh, I, I really try to unpack what do I see in Uber and Lyft about on-demand, about algorithmic management of you know networks of people and and things, uh, and and then go okay. So if you and I have a chapter where I talk about business model maps, you know, with this mm -hmm. idea that a business model is the way that all the parts of a business work together to create customer value and marketplace advantage. And if you look at, uh, you know, if you unpack Uber and Lyft, one of those things is they augment their workers with technology. You know, that's part of the opportunity. Uh, they, yes, they, they dispatch them with algorithm. And so then in comes this whole discussion of self-driving cars. And I say, oh, well, you know, if you understand that, this is a marketplace business which gets a lot of its advantage from other people succeeding on the platform. Uh, then, and you have this narrative that says, well, no, we're going to move to self driving cars and get rid of those pesky drivers. 
a you're get you're you're entering an entirely different business. You're not thinking through what is the unique advantage of my model, and you end up going okay. Well, let's see. If you own all the cars, you have to have enough cars to meet peak demand. When the essence of your model right now with the marketplace is you have more cars when you need them and fewer when you don't. Oh well, again, I'm sure they've done a lot of math uh, number crunching, but I look at this and I go. The way I would think about self-driving cars, if I'm Uber and Lyft, I go, okay, we can become a platform. Once we have those self-driving cars, what will the people in our marketplace do then? You know, rather than we'll get rid of them. You know, think about Airbnb. Sure. They've done that. They're saying, oh, let's build this new layer called Airbnb Experiences because as there are more hosts, whatever, we're trying to create more value for the people who are part of our network. Yep. You know, if Airbnb were going, well, now let's just have self-driving, uh, uh, you know, we'll get rid of those pesky hosts. Oh, yeah, we'll become Hilton. No. You know, why would you want to do that? <laughs> the essence of the, of the model is that it's a marketplace that brings more people in. Now, you look at Amazon, they've gone the other way. Yes, they built this incredible platform infrastructure, but in everything from warehousing to cloud computing, they've actually said, we're going to enable other people with this stuff we built. And so I feel like that's sort of a central design pattern of, of the economy is it should a, – a really successful company should create value for not just for customers but for suppliers, for the entire economy. And so I spend a lot of time in the book talking about marketplace businesses, what makes them tick, how do you build a thick marketplace. And, and, and then I, I really try to apply that to our broader economy. It, you know, we have a bunch of industries like our finance industry, which is simply becoming extractive. They're no longer trying to invest in the real world, create value for ordinary people. And and I do look at, uh, you know, uh, people are, are, are maybe surprised that in some ways Amazon is, is uh, you know, one of the heroes of the book because – there was a narrative that Amazon is, you know, there's, you know, this horrible company. They're working people so hard. And, yeah, I think they made some pretty serious mistakes there, but it's increasingly coming out. They're creating more jobs. You know, I mean, look at Amazon Flex. It's almost as big as as as, as Lyft uh, in the number of drivers. Uh, you look at the, uh, the research is now showing that we're we're gaining more jobs in in uh, e-commerce than we're losing in retail despite all the stories about the 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 retail you know apocalypse uh, and those jobs according to Michael Mandel of the Progressive Policy Institute actually pay better and so we're actually understanding and I think Amazon is probably furthest along understanding that we can make good jobs in this new world and uh, I think so anyway, so I wrote the book to really try to say, well, who can we learn from and what do we learn from them uh, uh, that's helpful to us in understanding the economy? So there's really three big um, blocks of lesson in the book. The first one is just a set of techniques for how to think about the future and how to notice trends and how to notice patterns. Uh, the second part of the book is really the dynamics of platforms as marketplaces uh, and why they need to be two-sided, why they need to build this thick marketplace uh, and how that ultimately distinguishes the success of these platforms. And then uh, the third part is really about how do we manage algorithms in today's increasingly algorithmically dominated 
uh, marketplaces and what does it mean to manage an algorithm and then really I go from there to, to sort of saying okay well here are all these lessons that we've gotten from from technology companies do they apply to the entire the, the economy as a whole and I come to the conclusion that yes they do got it can, can we dive into the first one a little bit more um, can you talk about yeah. whatever framework or method you use and you employ to spot some of these trends and and see some of these technology shifts before they happen yeah, well, probably the um, the the biggest thing that I do is that I try to meet interesting people and notice things that other people don't notice about them. You know, so uh, probably the the earliest really vivid example of that was with uh, you know my championing of open source over free software. And what I noticed was that there was this whole movement around Linux. I was publishing Linux books, and and uh, and, and there was and there was a narrative about free software that was framed as Linux is going to replace Microsoft. It's you know Linux. Well, it's actually first it was going to replace Unix, but it was also you know going to compete with Microsoft. And, and I went, but wait, wait, wait. All the internet stuff is free software too. Why aren't you talking about that? <laughs> you know, and so it's just like noticing uh, the the map that people you because know, basically I, I got this training very early on in, in general semantics, which uh, was this sort of slightly cranky, uh, uh, well maybe not just slightly this uh, you know certainly idiosyncratic philosophy from the 20s and 30s of, of which really was around the idea that a lot of the problems in the world come from people mixing up words and things hmm. you know the bottom you know the the, the famous uh dictum of alfred korzybski the author of this book it was called science and sanity uh was that, that the map is not the territory the language is a map uh we people all the time get locked into ideas that turn out not to match the reality on the ground and he was using it for things like you know racism you know or uh whatever but uh as examples of of sort of uh pathologies that were basically based in the words we use and mistaking the words for for the underlying reality but that also really applies to technology you know here was this whole movement it was talking about the power of free software and they were so wrapped up in this map of the the politics of free software versus proprietary software that they didn't notice that the world wide web had been put in the public domain that the uh, you know or, or they left it out of the story i mean they kind of knew it but they you know that the, the dns was based on the berkeley internet name demon again you know one programmer maintaining this thing you know it's uh, out under the berkeley license uh, you know the x window system apache you know sendmail you know, all this internet infrastructure was also free software. It was taking off even more than Linux, and nobody was talking about it. So I started talking about it, and I said all these things, and I kind of redrew the map, so to speak. And I think the same thing, the next big one of those for me was after the dot-com bust, where we were like, no, the, the web isn't over. Look, this, you know, all the, all the companies that thought that the web was a broadcast medium became kind of like on a sort of television-ish model, died. And the ones that understood that 
this was a way of harnessing collective intelligence that they're really these network businesses, you know, Google, Amazon, uh, they're thriving. And I, you know, told a story about that, which uh, my colleague Dale Doherty eventually, uh, you know, christened Web 2.0. And, uh, you know, but I was really, look, the Internet is becoming the platform. Uh, data is the intel inside in that platform. Uh, it's effectively softer above the level of a, a single device, what we now call cloud computing. Um, you know, it's data driven, you know, big data. You know, all these ideas were, were sort of there in front of us in the companies that survived and why they survived. And so it's really, for me, a lot of it is, do you look at the world or do you just kind of rehearse the maps, what you've heard from other people. And so I'm always trying to, you know, notice things uh, that are, are sort of outside the map. Another one was, you know, I, I kind of, I think I, there were, everybody was looking at me sideways when I started saying, well, you know, Uber is the, is the, is the killer internet of things app, not Nest. Yeah. And everybody was sort of focused, so focused on the device as the center. They had this bad map. Yeah. And I said, look, it, if, if Uber were a self-driving car, we'd go, whoa, Internet of Things. Or if there were a, an Uber button, they would have said Internet of Things. But the <laughs> fact that it was a freaking phone on both ends, nobody – but I was like, no, look through it. It's, 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 this is sensors, you know, connected sensors. Isn't that Internet of Things? And, and, you know, what does it teach us about the Internet of Things? It says, oh, once we have connected sensors, we can rethink business models. Yes. We can rethink the way we organize what we do. And so, you know, again, it's, it's sort of like you, you, you look at the, the patterns and then you go, oh, OK, what does that teach us? So, you know, again, you know, in terms of how all that's affected my investing, you know, for example, when I, you know, if you look, look at one of our most, you know, the, the investments that I'm really happiest about in recent years, Planet Labs or Planet.com, it's now called, uh, you know, some ex-NASA engineers. They were just sort of part of O'Reilly's sort of network. We, we, you know, we, we run this event called Foo Camp. Uh, it's an unconference where we invite in interesting people, and we've done one uh, since uh, – its original one was since 2003. Uh, but we started in 2004 doing one on science together with Nature Publishing and Google. And I met these guys from NASA, and they were like, whoa, we can make satellites that are, you know – you can hold in your hand, you know, and uh, that you, you can, you can, they're kind of disposable and we, we want to image the surface of the earth every day. It's like, oh, go, wow, this is combination of the maker movement, which we're seeing. It's a combination of big data, which we're seeing. And now, of course, they're, 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 you know, AI is central to what they're doing because if you're imaging the surface of the earth every day, how do you, that's so goddamn much data, you got to have AI to look at it. Sure. Uh, you know, so there's all of these interesting things that were just wrapped up together. And, and for me, I've used this term uh, sometimes called, uh, where I call people alpha geeks. And, and, and a lot of ways, the alpha geeks are people who are on at the conjunction of two or three different interesting trends. Yeah, right. And so that's one of the things, you know, so these guys, they go, wow, they're at the conjunction of, of the maker movement, big data, and, you know, ultimately, you know, this whole idea that we, we're going to have new kinds of sensing applications. Yeah, I'm with you. I've got like five big movements on my website and things that I look for in companies. And when I see companies that are, fulfilling or meeting all five of them, that's when I get ex yeah. extremely excited. But um, yeah, your point on Uber is also well taken. So I'm an IoT investor and people often ask me, what's what's an example of a big successful IoT company? And I say Uber and people look at me with 
curious looks and strange faces. They, they, they just don't. They don't get it that this location-based service company is, you know, central right. to and, the and IoT movement. The, the, that's right. And the thing you know that I try to do in the book by unpacking Uber is to say, okay, look, a lot of people very shallowly said, oh, it's all on demand, and I go, no, there's so much more there. You know the. the uh, you know, Uber and Airbnb are real marketplace companies. You know, there's a lot of people who want to supply uh, this this service. A lot of people who want to consume it. You know, it's relatively easy uh, for, to, to create new capacity. I mean, you know, for me, this is a really interesting thing when you create a marketplace that allows new people to come into the market, which is, for example, what the World Wide Web did, the publishing. You know, yep. It meant anybody could come in and start producing content. And, and, you know, and, and you go, wow, all of a sudden, what's special about Uber that was missing in Taxi Magic is it wasn't just a technology play uh, for taxi companies. It was, it was creating this new capacity. Yeah. By and by empowering people, and, and I, now you look, and then you go, well, well. So when somebody says, well, we'll be the Uber of dry cleaning, they've taken one small part of the business model, and not the most important part, because they didn't actually have a good map of what really mattered about Uber, and they also didn't understand. I think so many people still don't understand the the real expense of that business model is in building the marketplace. Yep, couldn't agree more. I've At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. I've got so many questions to get to here. I'm not sure we're going to get to them, but okay. oh. um, can we touch more on AI? So you mentioned AI with with Planet, Planet Labs. Um, yeah. you know, many people have this fear of technology, whether it's maybe AI taking over the planet or automation taking their jobs. Uh, you know, do you think technology is something to be feared? You know, wh- what's your stance on this? Well, th- the key part of the title of my book is The End, which actually my wife, I have to confess, supplied. Uh, Jan Palka, uh, founder and executive director of Code for America, uh, has this wonderful uh, saying, which she originally got from uh, Matt Weaver, uh, who worked with her at the United States Digital Service. Uh, Matt's a former um, Google site reliability engineer who got uh, recruited into working on healthcare.gov and, uh, and sequels. And, and his line was, no one is coming. 
it's up to us, <laughs> uh, you know. And, and so Jen persuaded me that the title of my book should be, I was originally WTF, What's the Future? And it became WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us? And that's really, the, to me, the central point is that we can make choices and we have to make choices. And, and I think that the, uh, you know, as I get into the, the economics part of the book, it's really a narrative about better social choices and why they matter. There's this wonderful quote uh, that I gave from uh, Bob Putnam, who, uh, the author of Bowling Alone and many other books, uh, who, who once said in a meeting I was attending, he said, he said, all of the great advances in our society have come when we have invested in other people's children. Uh, you know, I like that's to me is like this, you know, like a, a wonderful moral statement, but also a deep insight. Yeah. You know, when we work to make the world better for other people, we succeed. All of us succeed. And, uh, you know, you look at that in the context of education, you know, you look at the, you know, uh, universal, uh, you know, grade school education, universal high school education, you know, great uh, expansions of, of college postgraduate work or taking it to my business. You know, I was in the business. I am in the business of creating education and opportunity for others. And when, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the origin of our saying at O'Reilly uh, that our strategy is to create more value than we capture. And when I use that as a as a, a call to action to companies, that came actually at a, a company management retreat around 2000, uh, not long before the dot-com bust. When I was, uh, I mentioned in this uh, small management meeting that, uh, uh, you know, that, that some internet billionaire had said he'd started his company with an O'Reilly book. And I said, yeah, you know, he got billions, we got 30 bucks. Seems like a fair deal. <laughs> and Brian Irwin, who was my VP of marketing, said, yeah, we create more value than we capture. <laughs> and uh, I thought, that's a really, you know, but if you look at society, you know, there's a lot of work, this fabulous economic research, I think, of, of um, uh, Duran uh, Asimoglu and uh, James Robinson's book, How Nations Fail. You know, it's about when they go from being inclusive with lots of opportunity for everyone to becoming extractive, where a small number of people are focused on how much they get out of it. And the whole thing falls down. And I, I think that, you know, it, and it matched exactly what I saw in my own career. You know, when Microsoft started, they were creating value for everyone. And then they started to try to extract it all. And, and everybody said, well, we got to go somewhere else. And, and Microsoft lost their, their prime position because there was more opportunity over on the web. And I, I see the same thing happening today, uh, I think, with Google to some extent and Facebook, where they're not leaving enough on the table for other people. The VCs in the, you know, are once again saying, as they were in the heyday of Microsoft, wow, we're not sure where the exits are going to come from. You know, uh, the big guys are, you know, you, 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 you run the risk that they're going to put you out of business or they'll, they'll force you to sell for less than you're worth. They'll, they'll block off your path to, you know, to success. They'll copy your features, you know, and I, I think that's, that's actually a sign of, I think, impending trouble for the entire ecosystem, including those big guys who are so short-sighted that they're going to, they don't learn the lesson of the past to go, oh, when you start acting that way, uh, you know, this leads to disaster for your industry.
You, you know, while we're talking about the past, are there any historical lessons, technological or otherwise, that you feel like are most overlooked in today's society? Well, in today's society as a whole, absolutely. This idea of, of uh, you know, we forget that creating opportunity for everyone makes the top go up too, you know, and we, we basically give lip service to that today. Uh, but we don't actually, you know, we don't actually practice it in our society. And, you know, again, I, I'm just starting to dig into some of this, uh, but you know, a good example, I just, just quick, quick digging, uh, you know, Google used to get, uh, a lot more of their revenue from advertising on, on third party sites. Now, I don't know the reasons for it. Maybe there's some other, you know, other reason besides the fact that they are offering more and more of the services uh, that used to come from someone else. But it sure looks suspicious that, you know, five years ago, 30% of their ad revenue was on third-party sites, and it's now down to 18%. Yeah. You know, and, and I look, oh, yeah, I used to use flightaware.com. Now Google just shows me the results. I used to go, uh, you know, look at this site. Now, well, Google just shows me the results. It's not that different from Microsoft saying, oh, yeah, you know, spreadsheets. Yeah, we'll do that. Word processing. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. And, you know, and Google bit by bit, they, they can make the case. It's better for our users, but right. it's not better for the market as a whole. And it's not better for the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So anyway, that, that's probably the biggest lesson. Um, the other, the other lesson I think that I think we really have to come to grips with is in the context of long-term trends like climate change, uh, you know, this obviously there are going to be opportunities uh, that are directly energy related. You know, Elon Musk obviously is going after a lot of that. He understands that that's a big framing mega trend uh, that's going to affect everything we do. But I think there's a lot of other implications of things that we know. You know, we know that in developing countries, in developed countries, uh, we have a demographic uh, cliff heading, you know, ahead of us. What are we going to do about that? You know, what's the right timing for investing against that? Particularly in an era where you know we're cutting off immigration, which is the one thing that will, you know, the, the one reason the U.S. has been ahead of Europe and, and so on, and Japan is because we've had this this uh, you know young, younger people coming into the country still, and now we're cutting that off. You know, you go, wow, well, we're going to have a problem and there's going to be a lot of interesting opportunities for automation there. But, but coming back to the, the, um, this sort of question of automation, I, I really like to celebrate the fact that when you use robots correctly, you actually create more – or when you use technology of any kind correctly, you actually create more opportunity. Uh, you know, Uber and Lyft have put more people to work driving other people around uh, than the, the previous taxi industry. They didn't put people out of, out of business. Amazon put 45,000 robots into their warehouses between 2014 and 2016, added 250,000 people because they didn't say we're going to do the same thing more cheaply. They said we're going to use these, these robots and people to do more. We're going to make the, the business better. And uh, I think, you know, so I hear these narratives. I heard one investor, for example, who said, oh, I'm going to invest in a, uh, a startup that will get rid of 30% of, of call center jobs. And I said, well, why would you want to do that? 
you know, most people's experience of call centers is really lousy. You know, like <laughs> yeah. if you happen to get rid of some jobs in the course of making call centers better, then I'll buy that. But just the idea that you're just going to have shitty call centers with fewer workers, that's a lousy business idea. <laughs> I don't care how much AI is in it. Yep. You know, make it better. Yeah. You yeah. know, we have this notion that better is cheaper only. You know, and, and that's part of the extractive mindset. Well, a lot of people, I don't think they do a full breadth analysis of the stakeholders involved in any business, right? They look at one yeah. stakeholder and how to optimize around that as opposed to, that's absolutely right. you know, customers, shareholders, employees, et cetera. So before we wrap up here, while I've got the trend spotter on the line here, can I, can I get your thoughts on cryptocurrencies and, and, and maybe ICOs as well? Well, um, ICOs, I'll start with, uh, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's the, uh, we're really in the, the, the gambling bubble phase pretty hard now. Uh, I, you know, I look at, here's the thing I feel like about with cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's, there's some real technology there, which is going to be really important. It's ended up becoming a tool for speculation. I'm not a speculator. I don't find that interesting. I don't find that valuable. Now, I'm I, I'm pretty sure that something really useful is going to emerge out of it, but it'll be after a crash when we'll see what's left standing. And we'll go, oh, those were those things that didn't look that interesting at the time. <laughs> but they were the real, that was the real stuff that was happening. Too close to the bullseye right now? I mean, we, we've, we've invested in a couple of things uh, in, in, in the space, but... Uh, uh, again, I, I I feel like there's so much uh, money chasing. Uh, to me, chasing an outcome which is basically a big gamble, you know, is is just it's just bad investing to me. Hmm. You know, if you don't want to own it forever, you know, I, I, you don't see you know Larry and Sergey saying or Mark saying, man. Yeah, flip Google and you know, <laughs> and go do something else. You know, or or let's see how fat, how high we can run this thing up, and then and then you know, it's like no, this is about building long term value. And again, I I think I guess I would just say the, the the fundamental dynamic of of value creation in cryptocurrency is is either you know, it's multi-level marketing in some sense, you know, like I got in early and I built a bunch of this, I got a bunch of this stuff. And so I'm going to do really well. You're coming along later. You're only going to do well, you know, if, as long as the speculative, you know, bubble keeps going and once it crashes, you're, you know, if you came in late, you're toast. And I go, I don't like that kind of market where, you know, this, some people are big winners and a lot of, uh, for them to win, other people are going to lose. Right. Well, you talked a lot about cash flows before, and Warren Buffett's classic response to to all this crypto stuff is he invests in cash flow businesses, you know, not assets that have no intrinsic value or no or yeah. or are not producing cash flows. Right. So I'm I'm very eager for the 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 the, uh, the bubble part of this uh, cryptocurrency thing to go away, and and for us to start understanding. Uh, you know, what it's really good for. There is one cautionary thing, you know, when they talk about, uh, you know, sort of risks of future AI and you think about, wow, 
uh, if you wanted to have an AI uh, that you couldn't turn off, you'd build it on uh, on, on, a, on a blockchain foundation. Interesting. <laughs> Which wow. I don't think we want to do. <laughs> not, not to say, I mean, I, I'm actually generally skeptical of the idea that uh, you know, there's going to be some runaway AI. Uh, in the book, I talk about the way that AI is already running away, and it's it's right in front of us. But it's not the the rogue AI that becomes independently intelligent. It's it's the new partnership of humans and machines gone awry in the way that humans and machines have always gone awry. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. What what about so on the ICO point though? What about ICOs as the future version of venture capital, you know, easier to sell securities, easier to trade securities, introducing better liquidity into VC. No, I, I, I don't buy that at all. I, okay. I, to me, bad, easy money equals bad investments. Well, what if it's not easy money? What if it's just a replacement for the existing? But, but, I mean, but, the, but then, then, you know, you know, why would you do it? I mean, again, maybe... Yeah, once it becomes, uh, uh, you know, if it became a norm, but uh, realistically, you know, to me, this there's also just a real, um, there's a moral hazard uh, when you make it really easy for ordinary people to invest, and you have a lot of speculative fever. Okay, the people who don't have the experience and don't have the resources are the one who are going to lose their, yeah. their shirt. They suffer. Yeah. You know, so like I'm thinking of a young, you know, like a teenager I know who, who, you know, who's taken his, you know, his small savings and, and sure, maybe it's, it's going to be this great educational experience for him, you know, buying Bitcoin and Litecoin and, you know, and he's not a sophisticated investor, you know, and, and that's who you're going to get your money from. And when you're wrong, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I know that I'm going to lose a, a lot of the time when I'm investing. You know, so I don't, I think, I think you want investing to be hard, not yep. to be easy. Yeah. You want people to be, you know, because right now what's wrong is there's so many shitty ideas getting funded. Yeah. You know, and there's this great story that I think Bryce uh, retweeted this. It was uh, with some uh, protein bar company. That uh, uh, got sold for yeah, eight hundred million dollars, and and the, the 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 son who started it, you know, and his 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 college roommate or whatever were were like, wow, we're gonna go out and get venture capital, and, and the, the immigrant dad of the <laughs> of one of the founders said, no, you're not. He said, you're gonna go out and sell one thousand bars, <laughs> <laughs> and they went, they sold their thousand bars, and then they didn't need to raise freaking venture capital. Right. Right. No, because they basically figured out the business. You know, if they'd raised venture capital, not only would they have done much less well, they would quite possibly never have figured out what the real business was. Sure. Venture capital is a tool. It's not an end and a goal. You know, I, if I could weigh one wand over every entrepreneur, it would be figure out how to do your business without investors. And then if adding investors will make it go enough faster to make up for the dilution, then you get investors. But if you have to have investors, you know, it's probably not that great a business. Now, again, that's not entirely true. There are types of business that are capital intensive. But if, in this internet world, you know, you don't need lots of investment to tell whether you have a good idea or not. So go find out if it's a good idea first. Love it. 
Tim, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Well, I, I think it'd be really interesting. You should talk to um, Brian Johnson or uh, Tom Reardon about Neurotech. Okay. Love it. Will do. Uh, what investor has inspired and or influenced you most and why? Well, uh, I don't tend to think about probably, I mean, Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's all I guess. And then finally, yeah, I, I, who kind of very from very early in my career, uh, I, I became a, a Buffett fan, and and uh, you know somebody who basically invests in real businesses. And then finally, Tim, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Tim O'Reilly. Uh, you can go to uh, uh, O'Reilly dot uh, com for everything my company does. Uh, I, I have a personal site hanging off of that called tim.oreilly.com. And I've also got a site devoted to the book called wtfeconomy.com. Check out the book. It is WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. The man is Tim O'Reilly. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a huge pleasure for me, and I, I can't wait to do it again. All right. That was okay. good. Thanks a lot. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.